entering the Freedom Hut. Panic over a possible pandemic. President Trump trying to put that to rest with a press conference. He says, we're on it. The Democrats are coming after him with everything they've got, though, making this political before we even know what's going to happen. We've got that and a lot more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American the Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We have, through some very good early decisions, decisions that were actually ridiculed at the beginning, we closed up our borders to flights coming in from certain areas, uh, areas that were hit by the coronavirus and hit pretty hard, and we did it very early. A lot of people thought we shouldn't have done it that early, and we did, and it turned out to be a very good thing. And the number one priority from our standpoint is the health and safety of the American people. And that's the way I viewed it when I made that decision. Because of all we've done, the risk to the American people remains very low. We have the greatest experts in the world, really in the world right here. The people that are called upon by other countries when things like this happen. We, uh, we're ready to adapt and we're ready to do whatever we have to as the disease spreads, if it spreads. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. President Trump giving a press conference last night in which he was able to address really all of the broad strokes of the concern over coronavirus right now. Here, and here, here's where we are. Right? You've got about 80,000 cases. You've got a few thousand uh, a few a few thousand that are either dead uh, from that or looking like they're in critical condition. Right, we're we're in a a precarious spot now. Twenty seven hundred is the uh, total death count so far. A vast majority of that in China, and now everyone in the media has turned into something of an epidemic expert. Epidemic, by the way, on the people. Pandemic, all of the people, if you want to know the Greek. And it really is just a pandemic is just a way of saying a really bad epidemic. And you can already see that this is one of those twists of fate, you know, one of those historic uh, moments when, you know, Donald Trump was in such a a position, a glide path, it felt like, toward re-election, you know, Bernie Sanders, socialist, the whole thing, the Democrats are in total disarray, look like a joke. They threw everything they had at Trump. And not only did he manage to keep going beyond the uh, Russia collusion farce and the special counsel, and then the most preposterous impeachment proceeding in the history of the United States government, uh, he's been doing phenomenally well as president all along. And I tell you that, and I know that Usually, if you want to get people's attention, you want you want to be a catastrophist. You want to walk around and exaggerate a problem, and if someone doesn't agree with you, say, how dare you? That's the way to get attention. Um, people have this. We have this basic need. I mean, it goes into the, the fear center of the brain. You know, here's this terrible thing that could happen. And there's a lot of there are a lot of ways that people in power and media is a is a powerful institution in this country that they try to manipulate that fear center in your brain and get you to do things or get you to think things that you would not otherwise. I tell you, President Trump has been doing a very good job as president. And also, so far, they have been doing a highly competent job with 
trying to stop a mass uh, a mass spreading of coronavirus inside the United States. You know, we are not responsible for what happens in China. Isn't it interesting, though, that China is a police state, an authoritarian regime, and has all of this technology and all this enormous, this this incredibly vast security and surveillance apparatus, and you'd think that they would be able to have such a highly efficient response to this. And I mean, I can just tell you, obviously, it started in China. They were caught unaware. The government lied about this. There's a lack of transparency that the Chinese regime is always engaged in. But if you were to take it on on an apples-to-apples comparison, how China, the authoritarian communist, but kind of communist regime, deals with something like this versus what you would see in a country like Japan, uh, for example, which is a very has a very developed, very advanced health system, public health system, uh, you'll see that there's still an advantage to countries with greater transparency and countries where there's more accountability in the regime. You know, there's this leftist mentality that if only you empowered a government to do whatever needs be done, as long as that government was competent, made of competent administrators. This is really at the roots of American progressive ideology. The competent administrator will solve the problems of the state, then everything gets better. No, that's not necessarily the case. You want checks and balances. You want transparency and accountability uh, because that's what will make the organism of a government most effective at dealing with a crisis like this because government always wants to protect itself and protect its power. There's a natural, that's the natural state of a government bureaucracy or a government apparatus. This is why I call the intelligence community the self-licking ice cream cone, right? Because ultimately, the intelligence community, yeah, they want to do good things and they want to advise the president, but their first priority is really to protect the intelligence community. Uh, and that's certainly true of the Chinese regime. It's true of, of other many other countries as well. Uh, I think that when I was talking about the his, the historic moment here, there's no question that Democrats see what's going on with coronavirus as perhaps the the salvation, if you will, of their presidential hopes, which is a a horrible place for anybody to be. That's that's a, a disgraceful place psychologically to be. But I think we all recognize that's what's going on here. Democrats are in the precarious position i mean i'm talking about democrats who are you know very politically involved and part of the power apparatus I and mean, i think you know your run of the mill democrat in whatever state is probably actually very concerned about about coronavirus more than anything else but those who are out there criticizing the president they view this as look a crisis is an opportunity it's one of the most true and most cliched phrases you'll ever hear. And so they're rooting for a crisis here. Before they were rooting for a recession, didn't look like it was going to, doesn't look like that's, well, it did not look like it was going to happen. Perhaps now it will happen or there'll be something of a, a dip in GDP that's that's substantial in an election year that will be, as I said, the salvation of Democrat hopes. And they may be in this position where if there is a a large outbreak of coronavirus in this country, the Democratic Party will be benefiting from perhaps tens of thousands of Americans dying. That's where we are. I recall during the Bush administration when I was working on the Iraq desk at the CIA, and one of the issues that we were constantly involved in was was tracking not just, of course, U.S. casualties first and foremost, but also just all casualties in Iraq, all violent trends in Iraq, so we could have a sense of, are things getting better? Are things getting worse? And I had friends, and notably one time a, a very good friend of mine went in to brief Nancy Pelosi, and it was right during the surge, 
and it was looking at the the Baghdad belts, these suburb areas around Baghdad that had been the sites of tremendous violence. And he told me, he said, when he presented her with the information, he could tell Pelosi's just her whole demeanor, the, the situation being that violence had dropped dramatically, that the surge worked, and that less people were dying. And you can see, he said, Pelosi's like, oh. And he said that she said, I, you know, I, I guess that's a good thing. Now, she would claim, of course, that there's still violence there in the first place is bad because we shouldn't have been there, right? I'm sure she had some way to spin it. But I don't think when you see a chart of somebody seeing U.S. casualties and they're going down dramatically and civilian Iraqi casualties are going down dramatically, it's uh, I guess that's a good thing. But, you know, this is what my friend from inside the government apparatus told me. And I've never forgotten that about about Pelosi. So now I'm, I, I know she, you know, of course, if anyone else, she would deny or staff would deny. I mean, you know, or they'd say that she was referring to something else. But I think we all know that there were Democrats who were clearly rooting for the uh, failure of the Bush administration policy in Iraq. There's no question that, that was going on. They were actively rooting for failure. I mean, we were losing troops in in high numbers for a while there in Iraq at the height of the insurgency. We had thousands and thousands of U.S. wounded coming back, and Democrats would conflate always the oh, we care so much about the troops, uh, so we don't want you know we don't want the continuation of these Bush policies with also well the worse it is the better it is for the Democrat point of view. This is the uncomfortable political reality of a crisis that there are people who recognize that they benefit from the worst things imaginable happening. And that is the situation that Democrats are in right now. That is what Nancy Pelosi is doing. It is what Chuck Schumer is doing. I'm not alone here. The one and only the great Rush Limbaugh. I mean, he's been saying for the last week or so, just, just wait until they can find a way to tie this to Trump. And what we've seen is that they, they have been waiting, hoping... I think we have to use that word, that there would be a real opportunity to seize on to make this Trump's fault. But you have no U.S. deaths from this yet. You have no major outbreak yet. And I'm somebody who thinks that there will. I mean, this is going to spread in the United States. I don't think it's going to spread in in true pandemic fashion. It's not going to be the Spanish flu of 1918. But... I do think you're going to see a whole bunch more cases of this. You know, there, there are going to be thousands of cases in the United States, in my estimation. Am I an expert? No, of course not. But are any of these other clowns on TV seeing the news? I mean, the difference between me and them is I actually read stuff and I'm honest. They're just like, oh, how do I look? And let me spray my hair in place and garbage. So I think that you're probably going to have a, a surge in the number of infections in this country. But they can't wait until that happens because they wanted to get ahead of this and see the narrative early that Trump is a buffoon, that he's a monumental failure in this, and that somehow this is uh, a result of the gross ineptitude of the Trump administration. That's really what they're. Uh, that's really what they're hoping will be the takeaway for the American people. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, perfect, perfect example of this. <laughs> she doesn't like doesn't like the response. She says, "Play clip two, producer Mark." This is shameful. Uh, puts forth a proposal now that is meager, anemic in terms of addressing as well uh, the, with Ebola. We did five billion. Now they're trying to take the Ebola money and spend it here. So what, what he's doing is late 
too late, anemic. Hopefully we can make up for the loss of time, but it will have to happen. Professionals in place, the resources that are adequate, and, and not to be using scare tactics about coming back uh, to our country. So, so the big complaint here is that Trump has asked for two point five billion, and there they, there was a larger request for money to deal with Ebola. Now, Ebola and coronavirus. Look, this I think this whole this whole moment in time here, where the public is looking at these issues with with much wider eyes they have in the past. Those of you who've listened to my show for a long time, what what have I what have I been saying for years? for years now, is a much more realistic major scientific concern than, say, climate change. I've been saying pandemic disease. I mean, we could go back. I mean, maybe I'd even, uh, Producer Mark, we had, this might take some time, but we'll have to get our imaginary intern to do this for us. But I would love to go back and just show you the number of times where I've raised that if we're looking for the scientific community to protect us from something, it's not climate change. It's this. This is the real thing. This is science, you know, DEFCON 2. This is where the scientists, I, and this is where I want the smartest scientists in the world, the best uh, medical researchers, microbiologists, epidemiologists, I want them to be all in this because they can save, you know, this is game time for them. They can save hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of lives in, you know, in a, in a short period of time, not over the next thousand years from climate change, pretending that every flood that happens is because, you know, you're using plastic bags at the grocery store. I mean, this is idiocy. So, uh, I, I just would know that I've been telling you that, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria, that scares me. Pandemics, that scares me. These are real things. There are real things to be worried about. And there's now a greater public awareness of the limitations of our uh, medical community when it comes to understanding these things. There's now reports that somebody was tested eight times, came out negative, and then developed symptoms after having been in quarantine uh, and, and came down with the disease. They don't know how fast this will mutate. We don't really understand all that well some of these processes with, with viruses, with viral particles. We don't know that much about it. I mean, keep in mind, you know, and I know this is a highly simplistic way of looking at it, but I think sometimes starting with basics is very useful. We still cannot cure and really have no treatment other than symptom treatment for the common cold, which results in billions and billions of dollars of lost productivity every year in this country alone. Still don't know how to cure the common cold. So there are huge gaps in our knowledge and ability. Uh, you know, there right now is this focus on. Uh, vaccines, and I'll, I'll bring I'll bring that up in in just a moment. But I, I would say that you know right now the Trump administration on the response, what is really the concern that Nancy Pelosi is raising that they're not that they haven't asked for enough money? I mean Trump has said we'll spend whatever money we have to spend, but what are we what are they really supposed to be spending money on? You'll notice Democrats are very limited on the details, and another part of this that it's a problem for them. Um, what about open borders. What about a policy of making it difficult for the president of the United States, for example, to shut down? Remember, the president used national security authority as the commander in chief for the travel ban. And they fought that. They said, no, you can't do that. Presidents can't do that. It's so evil. It's so racist. And now everyone looks around and says, well, you mean there are circumstances where the executive branch should institute a travel ban to protect U.S. citizens? Oh, Maybe Trump was right all along, and not just because the Supreme Court told us already that he was right. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast.
Why is the White House message so different from the CDC? Well, it's just more of the same. Uh, this administration, time and time again, whether you're talking about uh, lowering the cost of prescription drugs or a health care plan, uh, infrastructure, foreign policy, uh, their plan is no plan. And uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, we are ill-equipped ill-equipped um, because we're dealing with this in real time instead of having been able to invest in um, proactive strategies by having the robust funding necessary to do that. This is an administration that does not believe in science, um, that has cut money at the NIH and the CDC. Um, and so I'm not surprised that uh, he's completely uh, clueless about how to handle this and how to contain uh, such a pandemic. And that's exactly why uh, I'm here uh, supporting Elizabeth Warren, because we need a, a president that uh, believes in science and believes in the public health and will make those investments in the CDC and so, NIH. Total blather. Nonsense. Absolute, utter nonsense from, uh, that's Ayanna Presley, uh, a new member of, of Congress. Um, this, is just, this is just what you say when you're spreading propaganda because you want power. That's it. There's nothing beyond this. The administration doesn't believe in science. What does that even mean? Keep in mind, the people that are saying the administration does not believe in science, if you ask them to define, I mean this, if you ask any of these Democrats, what is a woman? They will not be able to give you a definition. They won't do it. They can't do it. The left has undefined being female now. Being a woman is not something that they, but they claim we, never mind also what they do with you know nine-month-old babies that are a human being in every way and respect, uh, they reject science in such clear ways, yet they take this position right now when we should have this view that the country is under attack from a pathogenic invasion and we should be brought together. Instead, they're trying to score cheap political points and stupid ones. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. No, I think you have to always, you know, I do it a lot anyway, as you probably heard. Wash your hands, stay clean. You don't have to necessarily grab every handrail unless you have to. You know, you do certain things that you do when you have the flu. I mean, view this the same as the flu. When somebody sneezes, I mean, I try and bail out as much as possible with the sneezing. I had a man come up to me a week ago. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I said, how are you doing? He said, fine, fine. He, he hugs me. Kiss me. I said, are you well? He says, no. <laughs> he said, I have the worst fever and the worst flu. And he's hugging and kissing me. So I said, excuse me. I went there and started washing my hands. So you have to do that. You know, this is, I, I really think, doctor, you want to treat this like you treat the flu, right? Good advice. That is what we're really dealing with here. It's very similar to a flu virus in, in many respects. The differences are just we don't know as much about it. We don't know how, how what the incubation periods are. We have less time with this. And keep in mind, most of the experts that you see right now are saying that this is something that is going to become recurrent. Coronavirus will be a thing that is out there. It's going to be, it's going to come back. The vaccination, you know, they had a whole the press conference last night was uh, covered a whole range of things. You had you know Fauci from uh, what is it NIH. Or is it CDC? I forget where he is, but he's a senior guy. I've interviewed him before. And you had uh, people from inside the administration. Obviously, Mike Pence has been made the uh, coronavirus czar, I guess we'd call him. I don't know what is. He's he's in charge of this pandemic response. 
and the media is using this as an opportunity to jump all over Mike Pence because they hate him because you know they say oh he's just he's not going to try to protect us he's going to going to just thump a Bible or something you know they they're so bigoted toward Pence because he leads a, you know he tries to lead a traditional Christian religious existence. Um, here's what Mike Pence said though about what's gone on so far. Play six. President Trump's made clear from the first days of this administration we have no higher priority than the safety, security, health, and well-being of the American people. And from the first word of an outbreak of the coronavirus, the president took unprecedented steps to protect uh, the American people from the spread of this disease. He recounted those briefly, but uh, the establishment of travel restrictions, uh, aggressive quarantine effort of Americans that are returning, the declaration of a public health emergency and establishing uh, the White House Corona Task Force are all reflective of the urgency that the president has brought to a whole of government approach. What else were they supposed to do? The criticism from Democrats is pathetic because they don't have any real answers as to what should have been done that hasn't been done. And if anything, when Trump initially had the uh, when they initially asked to block flights coming in from China, there was pushback. I saw experts in those early days who were going on TV to say, oh, trying to stop people from traveling, the containment of this is even worse than the disease in a lot of cases because of all the economic damage it does, the fear that it creates. Well, now people are saying, no, that was a good thing to try to prevent the uh, massive spread of, of this disease. That was probably the right move. Now, there's ta- there was talk last night at the press conference also about a vaccine. Now, the timeline on that is that we got at least 12, and I would really plan for 18 months where there's not going to be a vaccine for this. They have to go through human trials. They have to see if it works. They have to see if it's safe. There's a whole bunch of stuff. And that's considered lightning speed for a new vaccine for a new virus. But who knows if it's even going... I I just... I'm not even sure if we know if it's going to work. I mean, no one's sure if it's going to work, but I, I I wouldn't bank on that. So really what happens now is you try to use all the resources you can to inform the public about this so you prevent the massive spread of it. But I do think it's also a a reminder to all of us that, you know, the common flu, for example, can can kill people very easily and, and does kill many, many people across the country and across the world every year. Um, you know, I, I've had the flu a few times in my life. Um, the flu mortality rate, they say, is 0. 0.0 or 0.001%. But Pretty much everybody at some point gets the flu, so that that doesn't. When you start doing the the math on that, it is it is troubling. And when people compare this to other pandemics, you know, your if you came down with with cholera, which is really one of the one of the worst diseases in terms of pandemics for a very long time. I mean, really the the top of the scary disease chart. Generally, you got bubonic plague because of what it did to Europe, but that was in in the Middle Ages, and that was also a time when we didn't have antibiotics or any modern med- any understanding of modern medicine whatsoever. You know, smallpox went on to kill a lot of people for a long time, even even into more modern times. Uh, so that was clearly a, a continued concern. Um, and if you added up the numbers on it, I mean, it's it's hundreds of millions of people have been killed in the last. I don't know. Well, we don't even know how long these diseases have really been around. So you just you know that that's been a scourge against humanity, a scourge on humanity for a very long time. So you got bubonic plague, smallpox, 
Cholera, which I've told you about the cholera outbreaks here in the 1830s, 1850s in New York City, where I am. Um, that was because you had a great concentration of people here, uh, and pandemics tend to be associated with uh, urban urban density for obvious reasons, right? The people coming into close contact with each other in large numbers. Now we have a new phenomenon in the modern era of people in close contact with each other who also have the ability to travel around the world in a day. So you have mass transportation on a global scale and huge population density and people coming into contact with each other in large numbers all you know frequently. So that's why the, you know, we have a much better health system, much better understanding of these things with pandemic disease is even more frightening in that sense because it can travel so rapidly and can spread so quickly within a certain a certain population. In fact, some of the the worst when diseases are really really bad, uh, I think there's a kind of flu H5N1 uh, that you know the mortality rate is I don't want to give you the wrong one, but it's very high. But it's so high that it's actually difficult for it to spread because it tends to kill the host in, in a lot of cases. That's the the lag time here for coronavirus because it means that you're having exposure to people while you're still shedding viral particles. Um, that's part of why they think it's it's a pretty effective spreading mechanism as, as viruses go. Yeah, cholera, you got a 50-50 chance of living, and it's really quick. It essentially... Um, drains your bodily fluids in, I think, in about 24 to 48 hours. You, If you get cholera, you are in very bad shape. Um, they can treat it with, with antibiotics, but if you don't get modern medical help, you have a 50-50 shot of surviving. Ebola, until recently, you had an 80% chance of dying, but the reason that it, so that's also why the spread of Ebola was much, it, it falls in that category of a disease that with public health systems and public knowledge is easier to contain because it, the people who have it tend not to go out and have a lot of exposure in, in public. And also the, the, the contagion rate for each individual is pretty low because people don't tend to live. So that's why Ebola is, and also you had to come into contact with, uh, with blood effectively and have blood come into your system, which is different than aerosolized droplets. Aerosolized droplets, you can walk into a room, you know, you don't know somebody sneezed. I mean, this is why these these upper respiratory infections that are uh, highly uh, that are highly contagious are so concerning to people. Because even if you take precautions, I mean, I know there's now this big spike in mask sales online, uh, you know, for surgical masks, and there's been some price gouging. I think someone, I saw this, uh, uh, you know, floating around on social media that surgical masks on eBay are going for thousands of dollars now. Um it is also interesting to me to see that you know libs who spent a fair amount of time mocking anybody in the conservative of the conservative mindset who just wants to make basic preparations for his or her family you know especially if you live outside of of urban areas where you think that it'll take longer for public services and public help to get to you in a pandemic or in an epidemic like or in a uh, you know a catastrophe situation yeah, now it's pretty understandable, isn't it, why people would want to have you know fresh water and food? Because even if the disease doesn't get as bad as some people are worried that it might, the fear can cause a lot of problems on its own. And that's why the president's approach to telling everybody, look, we're on this. We get it. We're not saying it's not a big deal. We're just saying we're on it. We are taking all the steps that we should be taking. And, you know, do not panic. Be vigilant. We're going to be okay. That's the right tone. And all this, this 
stuff you're seeing from journalists about, oh, Trump is not in sync with his CDC on this, and how could he say this, and he's so reckless. This is just politics. It's not, these are not people that are, they're honestly being irresponsible. And you would think if journalists' real job was to inform the public, to give them necessary information so that they can make better decisions about their lives, never mind about politics, that there would just be this focus on getting out the best, most important information possible about this. Of course, that's not what they're focused on. They're focused on how do we make this about Trump? How do we lay the groundwork for Bernie to have a big surge here? Or any Democrat, doesn't matter. Because of this situation that has nothing to do uh, in terms of its origins with Trump, but they are viewing as an opportunity. I got to tell you, there's a piece in the New York Times. This is so if you think, uh, like, what, what am I talking about when I say they're being irresponsible? Let's call it Trump virus is a piece in the New York Times. And then and then it just goes out of its way to do everything possible to claim that that Trump is the real problem here. You have a disease that that is understandably concerning people for um, the possibility of its massive spread. And the New York Times wants you to know that it's Donald Trump's fault. I mean, the disease that the libs have is clear. It's Trump derangement syndrome and they have terminal cases of it. They're never going to stop. They can't help themselves. And they don't even feel, those who are in the information dissemination business, they don't even feel a greater obligation to inform and help prepare their fellow citizens in the midst of this you know, precarious situation, concerning situation. It's not terrifying yet. It's concerning. Uh, they don't view that as the primary goal. The primary goal is to find a way to bash Trump over all of this. That's the single, that's the single most important thing that they believe they can accomplish right now. Something else that I got to tell you about from the CDC that just goes to show you, you know, you can't believe everything government tells you. CDC has put out this information bulletin on how some forms of beard, some facial hair may not be um, a good idea in the event of this spread, because if you have to use either a mask or a, um, uh, respirator, you will have your, your facial hair can break the seal. So they're telling people that if we have a pandemic here uh, of coronavirus, the beard's got to go. You can have a handlebar mustache. Mustaches are OK, but actual beards are they say are problematic. I got to tell you, you know, yeah, you, you only live once. I don't think everyone's going to shave off their facial hair because the CDC says you might have. But, you know, I mean, I could be wrong, but. I think the CDC is getting a little ahead of itself with that one. So where I come down on this is I think the administration is doing what they can do and what should be done at this point. They are taking it as seriously as they can, as they should. And all the all the the sniping from the sidelines you're hearing from these Democrats is exactly what we've been predicting, which is that they would try to take this uh, opportunity they would try to take this chance to um, make this about scoring political points for Democrats instead of coming together in a real civic-minded seriousness about how to deal with this. I mean, you get in a bad flu season, 70,000 people will die and nobody even notices it's a bad flu. How many people even know that in this country? How many people even know that? You know, the flu is very dangerous to older older people with, with more tax and, and weaker immune systems. It can also be very dangerous to young people. 
This will probably fall into that category if and when it spreads here. There will be more cases in the United States. I don't know how many. Nobody knows how many. The experts have given us more or less the information that they have to share at this point that's, that's relevant. They'll have updates as they go along. You know, what, what measures should be taken at this point beyond what Trump has done? If Democrats had good ideas, I would like to hear them. But complaining about the president's requested budget, guess what? The president doesn't get to create the budget. He doesn't get to appropriate funds. This is just like a, like a mission statement, basically. We all know this about presidential budgets. It's really just something for the pundits to talk about. So if they're just going to complain about that, they're being unserious. But as we know, Democrats excel at being unserious, even in the most serious times, which is what we're in right now with this. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. This one is tough. So the way I think about this is first we think about allocation, kind of of our overall approach. I'm going to be introducing a plan tomorrow to take every dime that the president is now spending on his racist wall at our southern border and divert it to work on the coronavirus. The wall is racist, she says, and it should be diverted to coronavirus. I I just want to know. Does Elizabeth Warren think that there's a problem, perhaps, with the spread of a pandemic disease and a porous southern border? Does she have anything to say about that? When people who especially will be in countries that have public health systems that may be very rapidly overtaxed by this, what do you think those people who are within striking distance of getting across the border illegally are going to do? I think we all know the answer to that. And we already know Democrats believe that anybody who comes here illegally should be given the full, uh, the full spectrum of, of the U.S. healthcare system's largesse, whatever you need. So, yeah, I can imagine if somebody comes down with this and they're, again, they're close enough to get across the U.S.-Mexico border that they'd rather, you'd rather have coronavirus in the United States and walk into an emergency room here than you would in Honduras. That's for sure. Than you would in Mexico. That's for sure, too. Unless you're really rich and you're going through the entirely private healthcare system in Mexico. Uh, so, what about that? Secure borders... In the event of a pandemic, we're now looking at the reality of why we would need secure borders, why we would need travel bans. Democrats don't want to talk about any of this because they pretend that living in this open borders, internationalist world has no risks, has no consequences. We're seeing yet another, never mind the erosion of sovereignty and the economic and political consequences of having a poor southern border. Right, right now, what we're seeing is the health consequence, possibly. Of, and, and keep in mind, I, I was at the southern border talking to Border Patrol, what, about a year and a half ago when they were discussing people coming across the border with with, you know, with active cases of tuberculosis, with active cases of whooping cough, with, you know, people coming across with that have all kinds of, you know, uh, you know, high viral loads of HIV. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And then that comes into the interior of the United States because the the border, uh, the laws that we had on immigration and the loopholes in them. Does anybody think that this is not going to be a problem, especially as we see cases already on every continent in the, around the world, including in South America, including south of our border? Maybe a secure border is a great idea, actually, a very important idea. But Elizabeth Warren, the only plan she needs is, is an exit plan from the campaign. We all know that. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Myrtle Beach. All right. How does it feel to be a bunch of radicals? Huh? A bunch of, a bunch of revolutionaries. 
such a socialist here in Myrtle Beach. Yay, socialism. Yay. You got the mayor of, uh, of Myrtle Beach there at a Bernie Sanders rally. Trying to get all the people fired up. Ha ha. Radicals. Ha ha. Socialism. Why is that? Why is that a funny thing? I mean, that's what they say they are. We're going to enter this phase now where they try all these different, the Democrats are trying all of these different ploys to make Sanders seem like he's not what he is assuring you he is. And they're hedging their bets on this. So you got to get a couple of, of things that are happening at the same time. One is you know, in the New York Times, and I'll come back to the de-radicalizing of Sanders in a moment. That's their backup plan for the establishment of the Democratic Party. And people sometimes will say, what's the Democratic Party establishment, Buck? That would be uh, people who are Democrats at the DNC, elected office, you know, powerful people in uh, in the belt, inside the Beltway and people that work on Capitol Hill, anybody who is connected and senior in Democrat politics across the country, certainly the establishment corporate media, uh, which is 90% five percent plus Democrat. Those are all Democrat establishment. Right. If you're a guy who spends most of his time uh, trying to sell scented patchouli by the side of the road and when you're not at a fish show, you're campaigning for Bernie Sanders. I, and I don't know if that's I don't think that's Democratic establishment. Right. So we, we can understand that there's some I guess all patchouli is scented. Right. I just realized that. But uh I don't know what patchouli really smells like. Have you ever smelled patchouli, producer Mark? No, he is like, what are you even talking about? This is a, a thing from another era. But the Democrat establishment, according to the New York Times today, is considering uh, how to stop Sanders. And this is what the Times is writing. So, and the Times wants to stop Sanders, too. Here's the ideal for our Democrat ruling class. What they want is Bernie Sanders to have a voice you know, they want him to kind of be like Ron Paul used to be in the Republican primaries, if I'm going to be honest. They want him to be a voice inside the party to get the base and get the radical, more radical elements fired up. But then they expect people to fall in line. You know, they, they want people who and this was very true of, of, of people that were you know Ron Paul fans for a while. You know, they would all oh, Ron Paul. And he was out there and talking about the Fed and talking about, you know, you know, we got to bring down the Fed rates and blah, blah, you know, all that stuff. And I, I think Ron Paul's great, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I just wanted to do a Ron Paul impression for a second. I mean, I think Ron Paul's got some very sound ideas and he's an interesting guy. He's a principled guy. He hasn't been right yet, but when he is right, it's going to be too late. That's the problem with waiting for him to be right. Um, and he would argue that he's right all along. And that's why we have some of the very, uh, very clear you know, economic problems we do with you know, the affordability of homes and college. And it has to do with, you know, QE and spending by the government and what that does to you know, real buying power. Anyway, so I know. So if you're a big Ron Paul fan, don't send me angry emails. I think Ron Paul's great. And I think he's got some very interesting ideas. All right. But they the Democrat establishment wants Bernie Sanders to be a voice within the party that eventually gets patted on the head and told, OK, now you go aside. Now the adults get to run things. That's really their attitude. It was certainly their attitude in 2016. Their attitude now is, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Bernie Sanders, unless something truly astonishing happens, he is going to be in a position where he has the most delegates, a plurality, but not a majority. Right. He's going to have more than anybody else, but not more than 50 percent of the delegates 
going into the convention in Milwaukee. What I think is so interesting is that there's already a movement underway or already you know, efforts underway from the Sanders camp to change the rule. The rule is that unless you have a, a majority of the delegates, I think it's you know over 1,100 something of the delegates that are up for grabs, uh, unless you have that, you go to the convention and you have that first vote. And then on a second vote at the convention, this is the Democrat convention now, delegates can vote for anybody they want. So if you don't have that, and now, you know, what Sanders is saying is that you should be bound even if he does, even if he's just in a plurality, not a majority, right? And now you get all these sort of, you know, rules of the DNC and everything else. But he was very vocal in the past about wanting the the majority, the above 50% delegates rule instead of just a, a basic plurality. Now he wants to switch that around because like a true socialist. I mean, actually, I actually appreciate Sanders' consistency in being inconsistent because that's what socialists always do. You know, like, you know, one vote, one election, one time. That's it, right? This is, we know that people that take a, a statist mindset, and remember, the implementation of Bernie Sanders' plans, the, the part of it that we often focus on is the raise in taxes. But understand that taxes are government mandates under threat of force. It's the seizure of private property with you know the government's stamp of approval on it or the government's act, actively doing it. And if you don't obey, they will punish you. So there, there's the threat of force, and they'll take away your freedom. There's the threat of force behind all of this. So there's an authoritarian nature uh, that is central to all socialism. And don't don't let them convince you that that's some quaint notion that socialism equals authoritarianism. It absolutely does. Socialism equals authoritarianism. To take from people, to give to other people, to mandate economic activity that would not otherwise take place relies on the authority and force of government in place of individuals freely making decisions and expressing themselves through economic activity. So, don't don't let them do this thing to you that they're going to try to do. Of, oh, it's not so. You know, Bernie's so cool. He's just like, you know, just like eating his Ben and Jerry's, man, and hanging out. You know, just doing his thing. By the way, Van Leeuwen ice cream is better than Ben and Jerry's ice cream, anyway. That's right. And you know what? I'll even take Haagen Dazs coffee before a lot of Ben and Jerry's flavors. And you can get Haagen Dazs coffee like anywhere. Like you eat a pint of that stuff, and it's like a, a bajillion grams of sugar, and not and not not very good for you, anyway. I'm trying to producer Mark and I are weirdo. We're we're on a little bit of a fitness kick in here. You know, it's time to time to get ready for summertime, summer season. So the socialism problem the Democrats have has finally come to the point where they're looking to have the establishment stop Sanders somehow. The problem they're running into is what are they gonna do? And the only real option that they see right now, they have to let this thing play out. You've got a fractured establishment field of candidates with Bloomberg, Biden, people think of Buttigieg as being establishment kind of, or, or at least running as a, a, a relative Democrat moderate, even though he's a far left guy. He's not a moderate at all. He just likes to sound like, and we'll get, we'll get into what he, what he likes to sound like in, in a moment, because here, actually, this would be a fun little diversion. People have been putting this together. Obama and Buttigieg. Hmm. What do they do? They have any 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 tonal similarity in their voices or in their delivery? And we all know that it would be Buttigieg copying Obama. This is a montage. Put this one together. Nineteen, please. A certain audacity to this announcement. I, I 
recognize the audacity. And church basements and in our schools. Reaching into church basements and barber shops, into universities. Light shining as a beacon to the world. The country we love shines as a beacon around the world. And if a voice can change a room, it can change a city. And if it can change a city, it can change a state. And if it can change a state, it can change a nation. And if we can light up a neighborhood, then we can light up a city. And if we can light up a city, we can light up this whole country. I got to think that whoever's writing speeches for Mr. Buttigieg is like, hey, I've got an idea. Let's just go look at some of Obama's lines and, and some of his speeches and just borrow them. That's, a, that's pretty close. But I, I can understand why Buttigieg, you know, Buttigieg has, he's got that very, uh, you know, that, that very desirable resume, Ivy League schools, Rhodes Scholar, you know, served in Afghanistan. I've seen a lot of veterans have been going after him for they feel like uh, pushing his service a little too hard. Look, I, I wasn't military, but all I can say is CIA guys always told me, know your role and, you know, don't. Don't think you're high speed and some kind of like door kicker when you're just trying to help that you're just there to help the door kickers do what you can to help them and and honor what they're putting out there every day by giving your best at what you do. But don't pretend to be something else. I've seen I've seen people calling out. I've seen people calling out Buddha judge on that issue. But anyway, Obama has a a very had a very impressive resume at Harvard and all the rest of it. So you can understand why they try to copy some elements of the campaign. Uh, Mayor Pete does not have the same personal charisma. In fact, he, he has a much more robotic feel. Um, so I, I've got to say, you know, he's not his policies are far left, but he's trying to present as more of a, as more of a centrist. That lane is very crowded. We know that there's an un, it's an unlikely scenario for anybody, including Bloomberg, who's just going to be like. Oh, California, I like I spent so much money. How much more money do I have to spend? Like I just vote for me. Stop. You know, they he he doesn't he doesn't want to go through this. He doesn't have the fire in the belly for this at all. He really just doesn't want Trump to be president. And I think the irony is he might be helping Trump be president by making sure that Bernie Sanders is the nominee. So the only option open to the establishment, the Democratic establishment, really, realistically, is they will have to try some shenanigans at the convention. And a lot of people that that were bound to vote for Bernie Sanders on the first ballot, on the second ballot, would be like, nah, not going to do that. And going to go for somebody else. And that's where you have all these theories that pundits love to talk about. Uh, in this case, I think that there's some validity in discussing them because there's a real possibility that y- we might have a situation like that. Because the establishment knows, I mean, Bernie Sanders, socialist, look, the, the markets, I, I mean, I'll put my money where my mouth is on this one. If if Bernie Sanders, if I really think Bernie Sanders is going to win, because the thing is, if you wait till after the election, then everyone's going to, you're going to be, you're going to be selling in a sell-off, which is just, the, you know, a very bad idea. Um but if I really think that, that Trump is in trouble, Bernie Sanders is going to win, I'm going to probably get out and get into cash and precious metals and you know, not be involved. And I'm not giving anybody else financial advice ever. It's not what I do. But I'm just telling you that we are in for rough economic times if that guy's in charge. And the same people that are now claiming, and you cannot listen to them because they're hacks, that are claiming, oh, don't worry. Bernie can't do that much. He can't be that much of a dictator. The Congress will stand in his way. I'm sorry. We're being told all the time that Trump is a dictator. 
So and that Trump is able to destroy the country at any moment. We're just waiting for that to happen. That's what the left tells us. But Bernie Sanders, a socialist, won't be able to do any bad socialist stuff if he's president because Congress will keep him in check. He's already said he's going to declare executive orders. We can have a real constitutional crisis. What happens when Bernie Sanders is like, you know, with a climate emergency, we're not allowed to have any more coal coal, uh, power plants doing any electricity. Shut them down. He sends the EPA, you know, sends the EPA a bunch of guys with guns. First time EPA has been able to pull out their guns in a long time, I'm sure. Shuts down all the coal plants. Yeah, it'll go into the courts, but if Bernie Sanders says that's what the executive branch is doing, guess what? Maybe that's what the executive branch is going to do. So, you know, we, we have some real concerns. There's some real problems. And now we get into, uh, so we have the establishment hoping to find some way, and I don't think they have a way, unless they're going to try something at the convention, and then they risk fracturing the party and having Bernie people walk, or even worse for them, Bernie people going to vote for Trump, which is not as crazy as that is in some ways. Bernie organizers would never do that. The Bernie apparatus would never go for Trump. But I think there are Bernie voters who'd be like, yeah, I'd go for Trump. I mean, over some candidate that's just parachuted in from the Democrat elites, if Bernie was, in fact, winning going into the convention, I, you know, just as a form of protest, I could see them doing that, going for Trump. Then we get into the, the normalization of the socialist project uh, that the Democrats are going through right now. And let's just right now established that we're not going to let them get away with pretending that a guy who is almost 80 and for at least you know 60 some odd years has been consistently a Marxist and a socialist and saying it and uses the word, they don't get to pretend now that he's not actually a socialist. Okay, They're going to try that. We're not going to let them get away with that. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. When the uh, Democrats back in 1980 were all pulling for Ronald Reagan to be the nominee because they thought he'd be the easiest to beat. Uh, I think Republicans speculating about which Democratic uh, candidate for president would be the easiest to beat may be a bit foolish. Uh, I think it's going to be a contested general election. There's a lot of energy on both sides. And for myself, I'll leave it up to the Democrats to pick who they'd like uh, to be their candidate. I would add this, however, if you look at what the various candidates for president on the Democratic ticket are saying, there's not a whole lot of difference between any of them. They all look pretty much the same to me, and the pretty much the same is very, very far to the left. It looks like moderate Democrats are an endangered species. Cocaine Mitch makes a couple of very important points here. One, when he says... You know, when he's pointing out that any no one really knows what's going to happen in this election and that it's going to be tight, I totally agree with him. I don't care who the candidate is, Bernie. I mean, I might tell you, okay, I think Trump matches up well against him, and I would like to see the American people have the choice between the real Democrat mindset right now, which is socialist, and Donald Trump. Uh, But if the candidate's Bernie, it's still going to be a, a tight race decided by. I think it's going to be decided by less than less than half a million votes in less than half a dozen states or maybe let's call it a dozen let's call it half a dozen states it's going to be five or six states and half a million votes that's really going to be the decider the deciding factor that's not when you're a country of 320 million people that's a razor thin 
uh, difference between two political parties. And that's what's going to happen in this election. So let's not allow people that are saying that Trump's going to win 49 states. They're out of their minds. It's not going to there's no way that there's no way that happens. I would I would bet every dollar I, I've got that there's no way Trump wins 49 states. OK, so that's crazy talk from people who just are trying to get attention for themselves. This will be a tight election. But Mitch's other point here, I do think is is important that, you know, the Democrat Party is really close to where Sanders is, and all these candidates really aren't that far from Sanders. To say that, for example, a public option, which is what Buttigieg wants, is um, something that you know is so different than what Bernie Sanders wants, I-, I don't see that as being the case. I don't see that as being true because you're going to get much closer to Medicare for all, even if you have that public option in place, because the public option will eventually expand and expand and expand. So listen to the wise words of Cocaine Mitch. Uh, Listen to what Cocaine Mitch is telling you here, because I think that he has shown us that when it comes to strategy in the Republican Party and understanding what's real, this guy has been getting it done. And and I know that, you know, the establishment people in the Tea Party era love to give Mitch McConnell a really hard time. Um, I'm sorry, the non-establishment Republicans used to give him a really hard time for saying that he was too much a part of the insider GOP. But he is a mean, lean judge confirmation machine. He held off Pelosi and Schumer's appalling impeachment gambit. And uh, I think when you when all said and done, we're going to look back on Mitch McConnell as a very important piece in the fight against the loony left here. So he's right. This is going to be tight. And he's also right that these Democrats really aren't all that far apart from each other on anything. So we should think of this as the socialism election, really, no matter who the Democrat candidate is, with a possible exception, uh, exception of Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, special treat for all of you watching at home, listening at home. Uh, We have our friend Jesse Kelly joining now. He's the host of The Jesse Kelly Show on Pluto TV's The First, Channel 248. Also, The Jesse Kelly, now syndicated, well, hello, radio show. Uh, He's down in KPRC Houston as well as other places. Jesse Kelly, everybody. What's up, my man, Jesse? Well, I mean, Buck, you know I don't like to brag about the fact that I'm such a special talent. That's just not something I would do. I appreciate that, but everybody knows that Jesse Kelly loves him some Jesse Kelly. <laughs> Speaking of which, you have a special, I'm assuming, coronavirus prevention plan for yourself, which is just to stay out of breath, sneeze, and cough range of all of us normal humans, because as the jolly green giant, you can just keep your head up in the clouds. You know what's funny about that is, of course, the week the coronavirus stuff comes out is the week that I'm doing everything you shouldn't be doing. I'm in America's most populated cities. I'm sitting on planes. I'm sitting on trains. I'm shaking hands with about 8,000 people. So there's a very good chance I won't be here next week. Well, hopefully, Jesse, you'll be just fine. How worried are you about this, though, for the, you know, in terms of the administration, the politics of this? I feel like right now we're in the midst of this frenzy with Pelosi and others who are trying to say, oh, Trump isn't ready for this and everything else. I I think in a month people are going to even they're going to be like, what happened again? I I just I don't see it. Look, I could be totally wrong. I'm just wondering what your prediction is on this. Uh, that's exactly my prediction. I, I don't predict it. I, I mean, you remember Ebola. A lot of people don't even remember Ebola. We were all going to die of Ebola for about five seconds there. And I'm not, I'm not dismissing any concerns about it because the thing does spread fast and it does affect, you know, people in poor health. So I'm not dismissing concerns. 
but I do not think this thing is going to end up being a big deal. And to be honest with you, even though I'm not the sentimental type, it really kind of bums me out when I see that about Pelosi and, and everybody starting to try to use this for political reasons. People, it's a disease. It's a disease people are dying from. It's not, it's not a time to criticize anyone. Show some leadership, calm the people down, get the stuff figured out. But I guess I'd be completely naive to think that they're going to do anything that isn't about politics anymore. Well, and I feel the same way. I, I feel like this is, I'm calling it a pandemic invasion. You know, there are a few things where you feel like everybody should be, you know, just everyone needs to shut the blank up about politics for a second and just be focused on what's best for our fellow Americans. And it would be, you know, foreign invasion or, you know, U.S. military in jeopardy abroad. Um, alien, I mean, actual alien invasion, which hasn't happened yet, but I'm just saying this is why they make it in all the movies or pandemic disease situation. Like this is where we just I actually want like if Chuck Schumer came out and he's like, I've got a great plan for how we can help do this. I'm presenting it to the administration. Let's get on this. And it was a good plan. I'd be like applauding Chuck Schumer and saying, hey, you know, Schumer can get it done sometimes. 100 percent. I'd be out there promoting his message. I mean, everything doesn't have to be about politics. And I don't know how the left got to that point. I, God forbid I ever get to that point in my life, but they make everything a political thing. Everything's about Trump or Republican. Like you said, dude, people are dying. Not only that, the financial situation, people are losing their 401ks. I mean, you and I are relatively young. People are retired watching their retirement vanish. This is an important deal. Can't we all just agree, hey, let's just solve the problem, but we can't. Everything has to be petty and political, and I hate that now, but that's where we are. You see this uh, request from this, or I should say suggestion from the CDC that people with facial hair below the upper lip. So basically, if you're like an airline pilot or, you know, uh, a union steel worker who's got like a big old school mustache, you're good. Anything else, though, it could interfere with a respirator. They said this is a real thing the CDC put out. What would it take for Jesse Kelly to get rid of all facial hair? I would not get rid of my facial hair at all. And you know what? Who really needs to be worried about that is Italian women. I don't even know if we can leave that on the show. But all right, Jesse <laughs> Kelly, everybody. Houston uh, KPRC is down there. And, uh, and Jesse, I also want to ask you about what you see happening right now in the Democrat, uh, the Democrat primary. There's this piece today in New York Times. I was just talking about it. New York Times is saying uh, the establishment is trying to figure out what to do about Bernie Sanders. And they're basically coming up with, unless we just straight up, like, rob this guy at the, at the convention, there really isn't a plan B. Plan B is like theft within the party from Bernie Sanders, more so than already happened in 2016. What do you think would happen if they – well, actually, no, a two-part question here. One, is Sanders inevitable at least up to the, uh, up to the you know, Milwaukee convention? And two, if they do the straight-up, you know, the caper of all capers in politics and they just take this from him, what do you think the Bernie Sanders people do in response? I do not think he is inevitable, and frankly, I do not think he's going to be the nominee. There are too many powerful forces aligned against him within the Democrat Party, the candidates, the donors. There are too many people invested in him not being the nominee. I do not think he's going to be able to pull it off. And look, he is being damaged by this opposition research everybody's dropping out there about all the insane pro-communist things he said that is hurting him. It's waking up the Democrat Party to the fact that this guy's going to get slaughtered by Trump in the general election. That's one. Two, 
is people are going to lose their minds, and they're already starting to lose their minds, which hurts his chances of getting the nomination even more. I just saw a story today. There, his supporters are sitting out in front of Democrat, you know, party leadership houses, blasting bullhorns so they can't sleep. That's the kind of conduct that makes people hate you and your supporters, and makes it more likely they're going to screw him over. I also think it's fascinating that they're trying to now. I think they're they're just testing this stuff out. They're they're throwing it out there to see what works. But there's definitely an effort underway among Democrats to suggest that Sanders isn't a radical and isn't a socialist, which is amazing because he goes around ever being like, "I'm a radical and I'm a socialist." <laughs> do you think that? Do you think that works? <laughs> like, do you think there are people that are like, "Yeah, I'm gonna listen to what the nice man on NBC News says instead." Yeah, that's the problem. Bernie doesn't do anything to help himself. He's such a, he's now, he's not only been a commie his whole life, he's now the crotchety old man commie who doesn't feel like he has to apologize for anything horrible he's ever said or any awful stance he takes now. And all he does is yell at everybody when they ask him to do so. And I don't know if you saw it in the debate the other night, how sensitive he was when he got booed. He said something about pro-Castro, and he actually got booed at the Democrat debate, and he did not take it well. This is a guy who's used to speaking in front of a bunch of little commie college students, and everybody can't the same, and Bernie, you're the best. I do not think he's going to enjoy the rest of this primary. He doesn't handle criticism very well at all. What does it require for Joe Biden at this point? And we actually we have Joe Biden here um, letting us know something about uh, producer Mark, would you play clip 11, please? By the way, it's more than that. We've learned a lot in the last 10 years based on basic research. The basic research we know is the child's brain is developing very rapidly, beginning by age four, a significant portion is already developed. And so no matter what the background of the child, if they come from a poor background, no matter black, white, Asian, it doesn't matter. They, in fact, know now that if they are able to go to school, not daycare, at three years of age, four years of age, and five years of age, they exponentially increase the prospects of them catching up and being able to go through all 12 years without getting in trouble. So I think it's 57% greater chance. First of all, did you hear him say exponentially there, too, or is that just me? And second, uh, you know, you actually, unlike me, have kids, so you can speak with some some firsthand experience on this one. What do you think of when, when you have politicians telling you to put your... I mean, basically, like, like roll them out of the crib at this point and put them in state school right away. I think it's beyond creepy is what it is. I, I think this commitment that we have in society to throwing our children in government schools is creepy. I think you're naive if you don't think that's a big part of the divide in this country, why we have four million new college students graduating every year, that most of them are a bunch of psychopathic colleagues. And the Democrats aren't satisfied yet. They want them even younger and younger and younger. When we should be putting more focus in the home, they want more focus in throwing your kids in with the state so they can learn about the greatness of government and the evils of capitalism in America. And I've had about enough of it. Do you, do you have, I mean, I don't know how old your kids are, Jesse, but are they old enough where they've already started to talk to you about some of the stuff that they're being taught in school and you recognize it as you know, leftist commie propaganda, or are they still too young for that to really have, have been an issue? They're not too young for that. My kids are 9 and 11, and I won't educate my kids in government schools. Therefore, they don't come home with government propaganda. And if I ever got in a situation where I had to send them to a government school, I wouldn't send them at all. I would educate them some way at home. I will not send my kids to the United States government school to learn about how bad America sucks. I just won't do it.
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm somebody who you know the the more I talk to people that I know who work in the public school system, and I know some stealth conservatives who teach in public schools here in New York City, and it's it's really stunning. And you know, this is why I think. On the one hand, you and I will sit around and say, how could people be so foolish as to not understand the history of socialism, the root fallacies ideologically, the moral shortcomings and, and evils of, of socialism? But then we say, well, hold on a second. Well, of course, people think that this stuff is OK when you look at what they've been taught from you know preschool all the way up through university, even worse if they get an advanced degree, usually in the humanities of any kind, and all they do is watch... TV news and have these stupid celebrities that have massive Instagram and social media followings that that say that, you know, they wish that they could do this commie crap, too. It actually makes sense, as dumb as it is, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. People don't come out of the womb as socialists. They're taught that. And you want to know why Bernie has this support? Parents at the age of five or six send their kids off to government schools for seven hours a day until they're 18, where they then send them off to commie finishing school. And this is not just inner city New York or Chicago where they're learning about how bad America sucks. This is suburban America, suburbia, they're learning these things. Ask your kids what they learn in history class about America. Here's what they learn. They learn about slavery. They learn about our treatment of the Native Americans. And then they sign off the history class right about the time the commies started executing 100 million people and they say goodnight. That's what they learn about America. They learn to hate this country, and I've had about enough. What do you think of this uh, Project Veritas, the latest one, of this guy at, I think it's ABC News, NBC, ABC, who cares? I think it's ABC News, uh, who said that he's a socialist and said a few mean things about the president, and they suspended him. I mean, I have mixed emotions about this just because, yeah, I mean, the guy's exactly what I thought he would be, but he's speaking privately, and, like, I, I just, I don't know, what do you think? You, you know the case, right? You know what I'm talking about. This guy's now gotten in trouble for this, and it's become a big a big cause on the, you know, among among some journalists that this guy shouldn't be getting in trouble for expressing private opinions off sort of the clock. But I always look at them and I say, well, yeah, of course this guy's a socialist who hates Trump because basically all journalists are in that camp these days. So why is this a surprise to anybody? Well, I don't know why it's a surprise, and I don't know how you can possibly suspend him. I'd be surprised if the guy doesn't sue. He was having a private conversation caught on hidden video. You can't suspend somebody for that. That's no different than me having a talk with my wife about how much I don't like my boss, and she records it and puts it out on Facebook, and I get suspended the next day. It doesn't work like that. You can't do that to people. But look, he's yet another socialist journalist, and I love when these reports come out because it's just further confirmation for people that our media is broken and gross in this country, and you really shouldn't believe anything that you see. Uh, who is worse, in your opinion? The average American journalist at a legacy institution like you know the New York Times or, or CNN and the Washington Post, or your average Hollywood celebrity? Oh, the journalist. There's no question about it. Yeah, I agree. At least celebrities are entertaining, and they're good at what they do. <laughs> yes, I get something out of the celebrity. I mean, I don't care, and I don't know his politics. I'm just throwing out a name. I don't care if Russell Crowe is some card-carrying socialist who hates America. I get to watch him cut people's heads off in Gladiator and cheer for him. That's fine. I get nothing out of the America-hating journalist at the New York Times. Nothing. Jesse Kelly, everybody. Follow him on Twitter at Jesse Kelly, and uh, also listen to him on his syndicated radio show. You can listen to his podcast and watch him on Pluto TV channel 248, the first. Mr. Kelly, enjoy yourself at CPAC, sir. Be good, my brother. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
think that I think that people should understand that well, you all understand in this room. They do it, and they know it intuitively. As I said in your church, Rev, that uh, sometimes I wake up and I think it's 1920 and not 2020. Uh, Joe Biden he shouldn't be talking about how he doesn't really know where he is or what time it is, because that's clearly been a problem for him. I know he was referring to something else there, but um, Biden needs to drop out of this race. But he's You're not a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Yeah, I mean, he's he's just no one really knows what's going on with Joe Biden these days, including it feels like Joe Biden. Um, but I mentioned to you before that there's this uh, there's this usage of fear that like, it's true in politics. It's always been true in politics. Right? People, if you want to be a demagogue, if you want to manipulate perception and and be able to mold the minds of people through manipulation, uh, fear is a, is an excellent tool in that. I mean, it can be very easily and is often very abused. Uh, which then reminds me of how the gun violence issue is something that Democrats talk about in a way. I mean, Joe Biden, in the most recent debate, said 150 million people have been killed in gun violence in 10 years in America. And he just said it and left it out there. He also wants you to know that the, the problem is now that the media and the Democrats have convinced school kids, even though school shootings have declined over the last 30 years, and even though school shootings are quite rare statistically, and even you know schools are safer than they were even when I was growing up in the 90s, schools are safer now overall. They, this is just the facts. These are numbers. This is reality. Uh, Joe Biden's going around telling people that you know one of the big problems we have is that kids are scared because they're doing these duck and cover drills in school. Uh, play 14. As well, you talk about safety and security. How many of you sent your children to school in September, your grandkids, and they learned to cower under their desks, run zigzag down a hallway, learn to duck and cover? Well, we don't know yet, but I predict this is a generation that's going to be scarred by fear. It's affecting how they think about themselves. You know, with Jim's help and Eddie Bernice's help, we beat the NRA before. We beat them twice. We got rid of assault weapons and those big magazine clips that you can put 100 rounds in. Who in God's name needs 100 or 50 or 20 rounds other than to do something to kill somebody? No other rationale for it. I mean, Joe Biden's a moron. Always has been. Always will be. But let's unpack some of what he says here. The fear that children have in school, that they're being made to do all these drills. And uh, there are two components to that one is the exaggeration of this by the media as part of their gun control. This is why the Parkland, you know, kids, uh, Hogg and and others were elevated as instant celebrities, not the kids who were in Parkland who wanted there to be armed uh, resource officers, additional armed resource officers in schools. As we know, there was one in Parkland didn't do anything. The others, though, law enforcement rushed to the scene and, and were uh, doing their duty. So uh, Joe Biden is an imbecile. Um, that's what you have to take from this. And also what he says about the assault weapons ban, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about because violence went down and had nothing to do with the assault rifle ban. And there are more assault rifles now than were before. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This was kind of a surprise. Trump campaign sues New York Times over 2019 opinion article. The lawsuit concerns an essay published a year ago headlined, The Real Trump Russia Quid Pro Quo. So Trump's re-election campaign sued the Times for libel 
according to the New York Times, here I figure we go right to the source, alleging that an op-ed published by the newspaper falsely asserted a quid pro quo between Russian officials and Mr. Trump's 2016 campaign. Mr. Trump often threatens to sue media organizations, but rarely follows through. The lawsuit filed in New York State Court of Manhattan is the first time his political operation has taken legal action against an American news outlet since he took office. This is about an essay in which uh, uh, Max Frankel wrote about communications between Trump's inner circle and Russian adversaries in the lead up to the 2016 election. He concluded that, quote, rather than any detailed electoral collusion, the Trump campaign and Russian officials had an overarching deal the quid of help in the campaign against Hillary Clinton for the quo of a new Russian foreign policy. I mean, that was a, a monumentally stupid op-ed in the New York Times, but that's not anything new or, or particularly different for the New York Times. In fact, that's not even the least bit surprising. So we all then are in the position where we ask ourselves, okay, what is the administration hoping to accomplish here? I, I will tell you, because I am honest about these things with you, this will not last long. This legal effort to uh, go after the times is going to very quickly, very rapidly uh, fall apart uh, and get shot down by the courts because you're not able to, uh, under the heading, especially of an opinion paper and dealing with a public figure like the president, you're, you're never going to win a, a libel judgment in that case. I think the administration is just doing this because that's a way of, it's a way of fighting back against the left-wing desire to continue to publish things that are insane and defamatory by raising this. Again, now we get to look back at the kind of things, the kind of crazy stuff that Libs publish on a regular basis. And this is where I tell you, prepare for the most insane anti-Trump stuff of all time between now and the election. Prepare for the most established, most you know elite media brands in the country to do anything and everything that they can in order to hurt Donald Trump's chances for re-election, no matter how silly, no matter how foolish. There's been no accountability whatsoever for all the Russia collusion stories that were written. In fact, forget about accountability. They gave themselves awards for this. They think they should be uh, they think they should be, you know, greeted as champions of journalism for this three-year-long, now fourth year of a scam that was cooked up with the media in the very beginning of it, working hand in hand in glove with Christopher Steele and the dossier and some deep state elements in the government. They view this as something to be celebrated, something to be happy about. So keep that in mind, that background in mind, when we now look at what the likelihood is of the media getting even more insane between now and Election Day. Um, you know, it's, it's highly predictable, but what we've noticed is that the people that are able to predict this, the media won't listen to them, doesn't care, because they're activists who view themselves as having a job to do, not to inform the public and to present facts and without fear or favor. Their job is to get the public cert to certain places of perception and certain political outcomes. They want the, a majority of the American public to believe X. They want a majority of the American people to vote for Y, whether it's an individual or, or an issue. Uh, so there will not be any change in this. There will not be any shift in the media back toward a more... You know, relatively speaking, neutral position, 
watch as they get crazier than they've ever been before. I mean, this is just going to be completely, completely bonkers. Uh, and then people also ask me, so there's not going to be any media accountability at all. Will there be any accountability between now and Election Day on the on the deep state? Um, according to Fox News today, Representative Doug, by the way, I'm not I couldn't go to CPAC this year because I have too many shows that I have to do out of New York and I got to go do the Bill Maher show on Friday. Um, I team, I'm going to need you pulling for me uh, watching at home. If you can get somebody else's HBO Go password, if you don't have it, it's 10 Eastern is when the Bill Maher show airs. So uh, do do watch, do check it out, please. So uh, it's because I'm they're going to be <laughs> and that audience is going to be coming for me this time. If you had a, a distillation of liberal insanity and then was able to like inject it directly into the veins of human beings, that Bill Maher audience is I mean, they're as as crazy as, as any libs you'll ever find anywhere. I mean, they are you cannot reason with them. <laughs> You know, you cannot change their minds, and they just show up to cheer for the most utterly insane left-wing stuff. I mean, like like AOC today saying that uh, she tweeted out today that Mike Pence literally doesn't believe in science. That's such a—it's a stupid thing to say. It's not that I disagree. That it's a dumb thing to say. That is the kind of, of analysis and public statement that the Bill Maher uh, audience would be— you know, they'll be cheering. They'll think it's all amazing. But I couldn't go to CPAC this year. So if anyone's looking for me down there, I'm sorry I'm not there. I'm hoping I can get there next year. But between my two radio shows, obligations to do TV, Bill Maher stuff, you know, keeping producer Mark happy, it's a very full time job. And I got a lot of things that I got going on. Um, I love CPAC, though. I mean, I remember the first time I ever went, I was actually a young CIA officer. And I went with a, with a couple of buddies of mine in D.C. And it was the year, uh, it must have been 2009, I guess. Uh, and it was the year that Rush gave the keynote. And in the keynote, he said he was, well, no, it was 2008, no, 2009, whatever the year. It was when Rush won, uh, gave the keynote about how he was hoping Obama's agenda failed. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, it was, there's so few places in the country, especially for somebody who lives in, in the belly of the liberal beast here in, in such a, a blue stronghold. There are so few places where you can go and have the expectation that you'll be surrounded with people who are like-minded about so many things. And it is a big advantage, I will say, that I think that people who are on the left do take for granted. You know, if you're a huge lib and you live in San Francisco, you live in Los Angeles, you live in New York City, you just assume that everyone you talk to, everyone you're around is very uh, aligned with you on most major things, if they care about politics at all. And I'm a, I was in the subway r recently here in New York City, and some guy was having a very loud conversation with another guy about how much, you know, how Trump is horrible and like how racism needs to be a bigger conversation in this country. And, and it was the kind of conversation where he knew that people were hearing him and he was putting on a bit of a show for everybody else. But looking around that subway car, just based on party affiliation, the chance of it being... 95% liberals um, is, you know, very, very high. Pretty much everybody in there is going to agree with them. So when you go to CPAC and you're a conservative, you're in the D.C. area and you're surrounded with thousands of people that agree with you, which is really nice. A lot of you probably live in places where you have at least a high probability that you're not completely outnumbered and, and alone in what you're thinking. Anyway, so I won't be at CPAC, which is kind of a bummer. And I, had a, I was going to be on the main stage and having a conversation with the uh, representative uh, Jim Jordan, I think, about about uh, Russiagate. 
but I was not able to make it this year. And I really appreciate the folks at CPAC inviting. I was invited. They were putting me on the main stage. They, I, I love uh, Match Lap and, and Ian Walter and the whole CPAC gang, and they're very good to me. Um, I just I could not make the scheduling work this year because I know some people have already been emailing and, and texting me and asking, you know, are you at CPAC? Are you at CPAC? I'm going to be at Bill Maher show. I'm, instead of going to – this is kind of funny. Instead of going to a place where – I get to be surrounded with people that I'm excited to talk to and that want to hear what I have to say and that are happy to see me. I'm basically flying six hours to get booed by a live audience and get mean emails and tweets from like millions of people watching. So that's why, team, I need your your nice and supportive tweets as a way of you know counterbalancing what I'm going to be put through on uh, on Friday. But look, it's a great it's great. I, I look I so rarely get the chance to really argue with any libs. I so rarely am able to debate anybody. Nobody you know the CNN and MSNBC have given up on debate. They don't even have people on who can have a real conversation about any of this anymore. They don't do it, which is a shame. I you know I I got involved in in as a consumer in watching politics and paying attention to politics at a time when. You know, you'd have real, you know, there were, there were nights, you know, you turn on different channels, uh, different cable news channels, you'd have fiery debates between people who were competent at making their argument. That was a real thing that existed. Now, when you see a, when you see a conservative on CNN or MSNBC, it's almost always one of these, like, never Trump, cons- who are just, they're, they're frauds, they're crazy, I've had enough. Like, I don't even... They're a waste of everybody's time. Most of them are now saying they'll vote for Bernie Sanders. So they never really had any principles. They were just bent out of shape because they felt like they had lost, you know, they'd lost their their place that they had earned in the conservative movement and that Trump people had come in and swept them aside. And it was just all about ego and power and money for them. It had nothing to do with anything else. There are some exceptions to this. Very, very few now, though. We're seeing people that are saying that. I mean, if you're saying you're going to vote for Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump and it's because you're a conservative, you're either crazy or you're a fraud. Or maybe both. Um, but the, when you see people who are going to give the pro-Trump point of view at CNN and MSNBC in general, and I don't mean to be mean to anybody who's over there who does this, but some of them are friends of mine, uh, they're not people that are very effective. You do not see the most effective voices for the administration given any airtime over there because it's so, one, they have to protect their very uh, pampered anchors and, and pundits at those channels from having anybody who really will, will challenge them. You know, and this is, by the way, this is not, you know, Fox still has real debates. You know, Sean had uh, had de Blasio on his show last night. Respectful, but real exchange. Fox still has real people on from the left. Fox still invites on Tulsi Gabbard and invites on, you know, uh, any any Democrat. You know, they'll, they'll invite these people on and, and they'll they'll give them a fair hearing if it's a, a real if it's a, a neutral news show or they'll have a pundit who will let them speak and they'll go back and forth. They'll really do it. CNN, MSNBC, the, the snowflake libs can't even handle it anymore. And that's kind of a shame. Uh, so I'm excited about that part of doing the Bill Maher show because it is an opportunity to have the kind of exchange, the kind of conversation with Libs. I mean, look, they're going to shout me down and they're going to say, you know, terrible things and it's fine and, you know, I'm used to that. And, uh, you know, the good news is that that doesn't bother me at all. But, uh, you know, there are so few venues where you really get this. And the last couple of weeks on that show, I don't even think they had a conservative. So that audience is not ready for what's coming their way with the Buckster in uh, a little over 24 hours, so I'm excited about that. All right, sorry. I, so I was talking before about accountability. There's going to be no media accountability, and, and I often get asked about deep state accountability, and there was this 
this comment down at CPAC that's getting some attention now. Fox News is carrying it, and here's what it is: that Representative Doug Collins, I like I like Representative Collins, uh, said at thir- suggested Thursday at CPAC that U.S. Attorney John Durham's investigation into the origins of the Russia probe will lead to criminal charges. "Quote: This is not going to be a Mueller report. There won't be a report." Um, when he's ready to charge people, he'll charge people, and that's when we'll know. I hope that Representative Collins is right and he still has a clearance and he still is in the loop. I think he is incorrect. I do not think there will be any criminal charges against, and certainly against anybody who was a uh, government figure from the Durham probe. I just think that they're going to they're going to prove incompetence that has to be malice. But Democrats will always hide behind mountains of incompetence so that they don't have to pay uh, pay the price for what they've done. They'll just say, oh, we were too dumb to know that Christopher Steele's sources were all were all bull and then we were abusing the FISA process. Sorry, we're just too dumb. And it's very hard to hold people in a bureaucracy accountable when their fallback position is that they just weren't competent. They weren't competent at what they were. Sorry. Apparently, it's Buck's time to take some medicine or something. Didn't mean for that to happen. <laughs> Producer Mark is shaking his head. I got I got a couple of clocks in here that I got to keep an eye on sometimes. So either well, don't don't hold your breath on this. We'll see. Representative Collins could be right, but um, I, one of my buck predictions: I would not expect there to be any criminal charges coming out of the Durham probe. Certainly, any criminal charges of anybody you've ever heard of before, and that will make any difference in the fight against the deep state. I do think the Durham probe will expose. That there was, a, to anyone who was looking at it honestly, there was a clear and concerted effort to fabricate a narrative meant to bring down the Trump campaign first and then to bring down the Trump administration beyond that. That's what will, and, and then it'll just be what we already know, but we'll have more proof of it. So that's what I think will happen as a result of Durham. Um, I, I could be wrong. I think it's unlikely that I am wrong. Uh, we'll have to see. Maybe we can mark down this prediction. Some of my other predictions lately have been pretty pretty on the money. Biden's got to drop out because that's one that I've been hammering forever. That's why I'm like, when's Biden going to drop out? Because then I get to do a little victory dance here in the hut. Because when everybody was saying Biden was the nominee, Biden's going to win. Biden's going to be the guy. I was like, nope, not going to be not going to be Joe Biden. No way it's going to be Joe Biden. He's, he's, again, he's not up for it. He just doesn't doesn't have what you need to have to make this thing happen. Uh, he may, he might think so. Because maybe he'll just yell at everybody until they vote for him. Maybe he's just going to be a yeller. He's going to yell and yell and yell. I don't think so. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. You know, Bloomberg has to be smart because he's what he's done with. I mean, the the company that he built and everything, it's impressive. We can't take that. The guy, you know, he's he's impressive in that regard and building a company and running a business. So given that he's smart, I, I'm I'm just surprised. Well, I shouldn't. I mean, I guess we can break down why it is. I mean, but here's what he says, for example, about Xi Jinping. Play play clip A, producer Mark. The question of what you did, what is what is a dictator? They don't have democratic a democracy in the sense that they have general elections. That is true. They do have a system where a small group of people appoint the uh, the head. And they churn over periodically. If you go back and look at the last two or three decades, there have been a number of people that have Xi, had the same position that Xi Jinping has. I think the question is, if, if your definition is a democracy where people vote and pick their leaders, and that is not what China's about, and they don't seem to want it. 
they like their system, and I think they're wrong. I think they'd be better off opening things up, having freedom of the press, which they don't have, having lots of different cultures come in. That's the great strength of America. They don't seem to think that. And I think uh, we should work as hard as we can to change that. But you're not going to go to war and try to force them. It is the second biggest economic power, and we should get used to the fact that China is going to keep growing and become stronger, and we have to figure out a ways to work with them while protecting our industries and protecting our country militarily. Well, I think it's fair to say that Bloomberg has a soft spot for Chinese dictatorship. He views this, uh, and you know, this is because I think Bloomberg comes from the statist point of view. Uh, he comes from the statist point of view and is somebody who views himself as able to implement. So Bloomberg is the guy. Bernie Sanders is just like crazy radical revolution and like let the chips fall where they may. And, you know, I, I'm not really I don't know what I'm doing, but like, let me do it anyway. That's kind of the Bloomberg. I mean, the uh, Bernie pitch. Bloomberg's pitch is no, no, I, I'll be an effective super. He's he's that's a classic progressive attitude. I'll be the effective administrator. Just give me the power to do what I think I need to do. And I think that's why he has this uh, this fondness for China. And then also he he speaks a little bit about um, undocumented immigrants. Play clip 10, producer Mark, would you? Stop this this craziness with 11 million people who are living in the shadow. You've got to give them a clear path to citizenship. You've got you've got a staple, a green card on every degree when they get out of college, particularly if they're studying STEM. I mean, a whole bunch of these things. And we need more immigrants, more illegal immigrants. He's talking about there. Let's break down why that's a problem. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So Bloomberg's telling us that illegal immigrants are vital to the economy. He would have to know that we already have a situation that's playing out in the employment market right now where scarcity of workers in certain sectors is resulting in rising wages. Bloomberg understands supply and demand. He understands it very, very well. So he must have just been ideologically conditioned to think that we will be a wealthier country by... Um, Permanent by rewarding lawlessness and lawbreaking, and permanently making uh, making part of the American family people that not only broke the law, but in large numbers came here without any particular skills, uh, without uh, English language proficiency, and not going through the legal immigration system. And then I would also want to ask him, why do we even have a legal immigration system at all if this is where we're going to be? If we're just going to say, okay, fine, every, everybody who came here in this way gets to stay, why? Um, Mike is, look, he's smart. I mean, Mayor Pete is smart. I'm not like libs who say that every Republican is dumb. It's just, that's a silly thing to say. Bloomberg is a very intelligent guy. Mayor Pete's a very intelligent guy. He's a little robotic, but very intelligent. That's why when I say when I say Biden is dumb, I'm not just saying that to be disparaging and flippant. Like, I actually think Biden's not very smart. That's a different thing. I just think he's not a very bright guy. I think he's a very kind of, you know, mediocre to subpar mind. Um... I don't think Bernie Sanders is very bright either, by the way. I'm just putting that out. Elizabeth Warren is smart, but, you know, she's she's played the system a lot to make people think she's smarter than she is. Um, and we all know some of the ways that that happened. So I just I find Bloomberg here, some of his positions a little surprising, other than it's just the result of liberal conditioning of the brain. You know, liberalism is a virus of the mind. And, and then there's this Bloomberg comment. 
which is also just wrong and and dumb. So he's my my opinion of Bloomberg is going down. I guess I didn't pay much attention to him when he was mayor of New York. Now my opinion of him keeps dropping because New York did well while he was mayor, but maybe it didn't really have that much to do with him. Play uh, clip nine. Out of the 40,000 people that are going to get killed, a majority of them are suicides. And one thing about suicides, the psychiatrist will say, generally, if you want to commit suicide and you can't do it right away, you forget about it. Mm, I think that's very, very dubious. He's talking about gun violence there. They talk about suicides as part of gun violence when really... That's that's conflating very different issues, right? Someone walking to the store getting hit with a stray bullet because there's a drive-by shooting. That's a very different public and social problem than somebody who is deeply depressed and makes the very unfortunate and uh, never the right choice of taking one's own life. Um, so, you know, Bloomberg, he's very anti-guns, though, as you know. And so whatever he can use to go after the Second Amendment, he'll do. Anyway, just noting, I mean, Bloomberg is... He's slipping even. I, I, I try to rank, honestly, the Democrats in my mind and you know, where they are on all this and what I think of them. And, and Bloomberg is is slipping a little bit for me. He's, uh, you know, I, I've been thinking he would be the least bad option of the Democrats that are still in this thing. Probably still true. But, you know, I don't know. Klobuchar doesn't seem that crazy. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Team, let me just say before we get into Roll Call that uh, we, we did a little bit of number crunching here. And one of the problems that we used to have to try to overcome here on the show was that because of the podcast going up after the syndicated radio show, uh, we had a difficult, you know, we, it is difficult for people to listen unless they were going to listen, you know, a day or two later or, or, or binge listen. Now we get the podcast up every day by about three ish. And since we've been doing that, and we already had a, a, a robust, I mean, a large podcast audience across the country, um, but our numbers month to month from October, since we started putting the podcast early, are up almost 40%, 50%. And that's one, because it's easier to listen to the show now when you want to in drive time, and also because all of you are telling people, you are passing the buck and telling people about the show. So, I mean, I, I know I keep harping on this, but it's so, so important to us. It helps with everything we're doing here. And, you know, people that have never listened before, just try to get them to listen once. If they're conservative, if they're into politics, because we're getting people now that are really on Team Buck and really part of the Freedom Hut in a way that is, is just, it's inspiring for Mark and me to keep, we're just grinding. I mean, we're grinding out in here all the time. Yes, sir. Yeah, Buck just said he was going to give me a 40 to 50% raise. I mean, I, we haven't talked about that yet. Oh, we know. haven't? Keep up the good Darn. work. All right. Keep yeah. up the good work. All right. We'll see what happens. Chance, I was listening to your podcast. Uh, you were talking about the old X-Men cartoon on Disney. I used to watch that cartoon. It was really good. I also saw Gar uh, Gargoyles, Darkwing Duck, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, original DuckTales, and the old Mighty Ducks cartoon on there as well. All great cartoon series. Shields High. 
Um, I, I used to watch Gargoyles, actually. I remember that show. I thought that was pretty good um, when I was a kid. X, old X-Men for sure. DuckTales, original DuckTales, all about it. Never seen the Mighty Ducks cartoon. That would be producer producer Mark's uh, milieu. Yeah, I saw it. I didn't like it as much as good? the movies. I feel like, how could that be that I good? I was more of a Nickelodeon kid anyway. Is it Ducks, by the way, playing hockey? Yeah, like they're in the little masks. Right. Uh, I think that so. That doesn't sound... Because the movie's Not about... actual human, ducks. The movie's but... about human beings. Yes, but the cartoon came first. Wait, the cartoon came before the movie? Yeah. I thought the Mighty Ducks... Wait, so it's not like dark, DuckTales where they're ducks pretending to be humans. No. Are no. these anthropomorphic hockey ducks? I think from what I ducks? remember, they may, maybe they had masks on and they weren't actually ducks. I don't remember. You, know, you really ago. don't remember this cartoon at all. No, do I didn't like it that much. Yeah, well, fair enough. What was What's all... For the time you were watching it, mm. all-time favorite cartoon? Oh, Rugrats. Rugrats? Yeah. Hmm. Huh. Interesting. Love that. I love the old G.I. Joe cartoon back really? in the day. Hmm. I thought, which actually, now you couldn't even that do. That makes sense. Yeah, but now, but now there's like guns, and you know, there's guns in it, and they love America, mm. and there's like hot lady G.I. Joes, and like all oh, unacceptable now. Now it has to be like Teletubbies, you know, yeah. gender neutral. What a cartoon people do you just look like, like today? People like, just like, mm. you know, rubbing the tops of each other's heads and like making cookies. You know, you can't do any, no more America, no more. You know, no more ninja movies in America, which how did that even happen? But it did. American Ninja. You know, it's all gone now. Now there's just American Ninja Warrior. It's not as... Not the same. Yeah. It's real people trying nobody's, to be Nobody's ninjas. getting cut in half with a katana sword in that one. Yeah. Well, that would, that would be, be a, illegal. That would be a problem. Terrible to watch, probably. That, <laughs> that's probably <laughs> true. Peter writes, hey, Buck, love the show. You had a listener who was asking for a book on American history. I've been reading Land of Hope. An Invitation to the Great American Story by Wilfred McClay. It was written as a counter to Howard Zinn type of crap that's currently used in public schools. I've not finished it yet, but I've seen enough to feel comfortable recommending it. Hat tip to producer Mark. And of course, Shields High. All right, Peter, I've never heard of this. Uh, An Invitation to the Great American Story, Land of Hope. Um, Sounds cool. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Buck. Producer Mark is right. You need to watch the Marvel movies in the right order. I can provide a list if you're generally interested. However, you are right in that Avengers Endgame is not a great movie. Compared to Infinity War, the plot is unnecessarily convoluted and it breaks continuity and consistency of the other films. What is so special about it is that it's the culmination of 10 years and 20 films worth of interconnected plots and storylines that all of these various cinematic artists work more or less seamlessly to craft a larger narrative tapestry with each individual film acting like a musical theme within an opera. Whoa. J.J. is eloquent. True, there are better pieces than others. Some are better executed or more memorable, but they all connect to a greater whole. Anyway, hope you give them a chance in order now that you have Disney+. Plus. Shields high. P.S. In regards to the Batman movies, you said a while back we need an American Batman again. American actors lost their Batman privileges when Clooney was cast, regained them after Bale bowed out, and then had their Batman cards revoked thanks to Ben Affleck. Here's hoping Pattinson does at least okay so they keep making Batman films and we can reclaim the cape and cowl. Um, yeah, I, don't, I can't disagree with them on the Batmans. I mean, the, the Affleck Batman was like a crime against humanity. Oh, yeah. Like there should be Christian there should Bell's be UN Batman. resolutions passed. Like the Geneva yeah. Convention should ban Ben Affleck being Batman ever again. Hundred percent. Yeah, agree with you. Uh, it's really weak, weak sauce, weak yeah. stuff from him. The worst of all time though was the Clooney. 
the oh, Clooney yeah. Batman. I don't even remember. I think watching Schumacher was the director of that bad. one, and it, it had uh, it had um, uh, Christopher. What was that guy's name? He's kind of like a '90s heartthrob guy, and he played like the I can't remember his name, and Chris something or other. But he was like the Robin, and it was ter- It was just terrible. And they had Alicia Silverstone playing Batgirl. Mm. It's going to take a lot to beat Christian Bale in the Dark Knight series. He's very good. Yeah. He's very good. Tim, I've never called in on your show, and I don't have Facebook, but I've been watching and listening to you since Glenn Beck first introduced you in his New York studios. I'm an old retired sergeant cop here in California, and I've read every book you've recommended, plus many others as well. To the lady teacher in Alabama, sorry, Albania, (laughs) very different from Alabama. To the lady teacher in Albania, I'd recommend A Patriot's History of the United States by Larry Schweikert as an overview without a left-leaning point of view. Keep up the good work, Buck. I've enjoyed watching every success you've achieved. God bless you and Mark and our great nation. See, he he blessed you too, Mark. So, see, the world is full of nice people. Shalom. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Brad, by the way, when am I going to get like some, you know, when is Mrs. Mark going to send in some some delicious, you know, traditional kosher treats or something for <laughs> us? You, you know she I mean? just cooks random kosher treats? Yeah, you know, yeah, like when am I going to- She's know, not an older Where am I? Yet. I would like some latkes, please. Yeah, she's not an old Jewish mother yet. Yeah, I, mean, I understand this, but you know, kids. she's got to be working on the skill set a little bit. Maybe my mother-in-law. The latkes are amazing. She does was, make great latkes. That's the best. Yeah. I will pound I will pound or, latkes until I'm, the belly is full. And some homemade chicken soup. Chicken soup is great. I can't have the noodles. Yeah, I gotta do but the matzo ball noodles. soup you can have. But I don't think there's no, gluten I think matzo has gluten, no. I don't know. I think we got to check that one. I think it does. But the one that I've never tried, and I think I need to just so I can see, is gefilte fish. But I don't know if that no, has flour do in it. it. People it's say awful. it's gross. It's it looks disgusting. The only latkes people, are amazing. Gefilte looks gross to me. I've, the only people I've ever seen eat it are just older Jewish people. Mm. I don't know why they eat it. It's kind of like, I feel like our parents' generation is more into organ meat. And I, you just yeah. can't you just can't get me to eat organ meat. It's just not how I roll. Or yeah. tongue. Yeah, all that stuff. Yeah. There's no way. That's like, uh, I, I definitely, when I was younger, you know, my parents were very, very nice in that they would, like, bring us out as pretty young kids to some nice restaurants. And I definitely remember ordering um, sweetbreads, not knowing what that was. You know what sweetbreads are? I don't. Organ meat. Oh. It's like, uh, I don't know, somebody, everyone listening is yelling right now what it really is, but it's like, you know tripe or intestine there's some it's, it's gross it's bad stuff nothing sweet or bread like about it is it the sounds bottom delicious but yeah exactly no it, it sounds yeah. like they're gonna bring you out like a piece of like so you know your parents sold you out to dry there well i mean i i yeah. know they just let me order what i wanted but i definitely remember ordering sweetbreads once at a fancy restaurant my yeah. dad took me to and being like this is the grossest thing i've ever put in my mouth so but 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 a different you know different structure different folks yeah. some people really like that stuff uh, Brad, love your show. A friend told me about you in October. See, he passed the buck. And I haven't missed a show since. And I live and work deep behind enemy lines in California. I pass by Adam Schiff's office on Hollywood Boulevard each day on my way to work. While he spends all of his time in Washington worrying about the president, I need to close the air vents in my car from all the bad urine and feces smells that consumes the area within three blocks of his office from all the homeless encampments. Oh, that's rough. He is so deeply out of touch with his own district. They say coronavirus is able to spread through fecal contact, so his district will probably be ground zero. Keep up the good work. Shields high. Um, no, producer Mark is not even a little. He's not. He's not a lib, Brad. He's asking a question about you. He's, you're not a lib. That's not fair. Yeah, you're, I think I left that a, in the message. I wasn't going to censor it. But, yeah, yeah, but you know, he's not. A, he There's is, a winky face next to that accusation. Yeah, so but maybe he's, he's just joking. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think he might be messing with you a little bit. Yeah, you're not a lib. Bruce and Mark is a is a 
is a is a uh, a fair-minded populist for America. I leave the politics the buck. Exactly. That's what I do. Yeah, but you know, he's he's looking out for the folks though. It's like Bill O'Reilly. He's looking out for you. Remember that with Bill O'Reilly? Yes. Yeah. Uh, those were the days. I got to say I probably mo- back in the day on Fox, I probably watched more o- more O'Reilly Factor than any other show. As I've gotten older, I became more of a uh, I became more of a Tucker and I'm on Tucker a lot, so that helps, but um, probably Tucker is my number one watched show. Uh, Brett Bear's show, I watch a fair amount too. I tape these, and so I watch them on DVR. Um, but I back in the day, man, O'Reilly, when you needed somebody to have on some smarmy lib and get like all like splotchy, red faced Irish angry man on them, which I can say because that's like half my family. You know, when you needed somebody that was really good at uh, O'Reilly, he was good at that. He was good. You know, little, little bit, little bit. Tabitha, hey, Buck, quick note on paper straws. You aren't meant to use the same straw the entire time you're drinking. You're supposed to change it out as it gets too wet. Tabitha, come on. What, what are we? What are we, animals? We gonna change out the straws? Come on. She's just telling you what you're supposed to do. No, no, I know, but I'm saying, come on, no one's really going to do that. No, nobody's going to no do that. No one's going to do that. Not that I'm an advocate for paper straws, but I do know that's the case. I also wanted to comment on your love for Sir Kensington's mayo. While I agree that it's delicious, their classic version uses sunflower oil, which is a no-go. Why is it a no-go? They did, however, recently come out with one that yields, that uses avocado oil, which is thumbs up. Be careful with those trash vegetable oils. Shields high. Well, thank you, Tabitha. Yeah, I mean, look, I think Sir Kensington, I, I thought, see, I was a little, I admit to you when I'm wrong about something. I was wrong about Sir Kensington mayo. I was like, oh, look at them. They've got like a fancy guy who's like on the thing making the new mayo. I was a Hellman's guy because I'm, you know. I love may- mayonnaise is amazing. Producer Mark doesn't like it. That's okay. Gross. May- yeah, mayonnaise is fantastic. But I didn't think that you would really improve on mayo because it was good enough. Sir Kensington mayo is like, it's it's muy delicioso. It's really good. I know a great way to improve on mayo. Yeah, not eat it. Yeah, get rid of it. Yeah. By the way, you can always take mayo and add your own sriracha sauce to it and make your own sriracha mayo, which is a very, very fun trick for those of you watching at home. Uh, Becky. Thank you so much for sharing your brother's muffin company. Found them in Southern California. Great way to start my day. The Buck Section Show playing and my gluten-free muffin. Well, Becky, that's how I start my day. A gluten-free Susie's muffin. It's S-O-O-Z-Y. It's my older brother's company. Uh, they have them in uh, in Whole Foods. They have them in Kroger's. They have them in you know all across the country. And the muffins are amazing. So I eat them all the time. I, I actually eat one every morning. Wait, so you start your day by eating a muffin and listening to yourself? Well, no. I mean, I start my day by, by eating you, a muffin uh, and then doing oh, my doing show myself. Show. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm starting the Buck Sexton show, you know, as my day too. It sounded like your head was getting even bigger. You started listening to yourself. Don't worry, producer Mark. It's also part of his role. So make sure that I don't, you know, make sure that I don't turn into like, you know, MC Hammer back in the day, where I have an entourage of thirty following me around. Let's just we're gonna work up from having a staff of two before we worry about. Would that, I be though. part of the entourage, or why to be like? No, we'd have you carried in a litter too. We'd have okay. like we'd have like burly fellows carrying God, you. I'll be at the front of the, yeah, the entourage yeah. with you. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. That's how we'll do it. That's the show for today, folks. Tomorrow, uh, Ben Weingarten's in for me, but I will be doing my WOR show, um, and I'll be on Bill Maher tomorrow night, HBO, 10 p.m. Eastern. Team, I need you to have my back. Pass the buck in the meantime. Shields high.